0: The mysterious stranger i heard about my entire life swinging the bat like jackie robinson saving you mama and uncle george was me this book belongs to our family and together we're going to use this book to protect our family i'm chris Piving, and i'm eddie webb and today on genreless we delve into lovecraft country a rat done bit my sister now and whitey's on the moon her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor's bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. The man just upped my rent last night, because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's upping me, because Whitey's on the moon. I was already paying 50 a week with Whitey on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. Junkies making me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And as if all this shit wasn't enough. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell. But Whitey's on the moon. Was all the money I made last year for Whitey on the moon? How come there ain't no money here? Hmm. Whitey's on the moon. You know, I just bout had my fill of whitey on the moon I think I'll send them Doctor's bill airmail special to whitey on the moon like to, to thank you for <laughs> eating our uh, spoken word corner for the podcast this week yes yes and, and on drums we have a uh, mr. Eddie Webb
1: I debated giving a drum beat and I just realized that that would just be awful so I decided not
0: to <laughs> well the reading was probably awful too but you know what so you just time to do it. It's quite good. You had a good rhythm there. I appreciate your your fake praise to keep me on beat, sir. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about Lovecraft Country, the TV series. Yes. Um, this is going to be a very difficult and nuanced topic to discuss. Anyone that knows me knows that I have a interesting relationship with the book, the TV show. And the racist in chief himself, Lovecraft. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you do. <laughs> Just kind of acknowledging that that, that that is a very complicated relationship.
0: I, I've written some work about it that's in Harlem Unbound. And it's I think some of it's over, over the internet. If you really want my full opinions on it, I would say uh, go read those and, and check those out. I think they're well worth the read. Um, but I'm not going to go into full details here other than he was an ardent racist who was even bad for his time and I know that people say that well towards the end of his life he started to regret some of the things he's done that is a whole other conversation about when you have whatever power you have and what you choose to use it for and the work that was written does not reflect that and its impact doesn't reflect that Right. And yeah. for all you people out there that are writing Lovecraft material, this one is is just for you, that if you're buying a book by someone that's writing Lovecraft material and the entire team is primarily white, cis people, or they don't have any of the marginalized groups that are highly impacted by that work neg- negatively, I would advise you to not buy that as that supports them and whatever agenda they're trying to trying to move forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for my part, um, uh, the only thing I can kind of add to it, because I'm I'm equally very um, down on Lovecraft, uh, but for me, it comes from the uh, ableism, mental health perspective, because a lot of Lovecraft systems slash pastiches also extremely badly presents uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, uh, on top of everything, also, if your system uh, talks about sanity uh, and how losing it makes you a terrible person, maybe reconsider your life choices
0: and so that that is it for the racist in chief himself unless you have anything else you'd like to add about that person
1: i think we've given him more than enough coverage
0: all right um so let's talk about lovecraft country briefly the book and then in depth the tv series so for the book itself i'm going to point out that i have an issue with the book also because it is a white man writing about black struggle and profiting off of it unbelievably successfully to get your own TV series. I think he's going to come out with a second book and that bothers me intrinsically as a person that is going through that struggle to have someone else profit so much off of, not necessarily my story, but something that is potentially my story. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he had sensitivity readers or anything else, but I have an intrinsic problem with that at at the heart of it.
1: Okay, I was, I was unaware of that, but uh, I could totally see why. It's one thing, when we talked about this before, it's one thing to say that um, you can only talk, present characters that reflect your own identity. We, I, I don't think that is fair. Um, but when your entire book revolves around identity that's not yours, that's, that's, now we're getting into rough territory.
0: And it's not Matt Ruff and Friends. It is Matt Ruff wrote right. this book. Right. So bothered considering someone that when I make a book, if I'm telling a lot of different stories, I bring on those people to have them be part of that process. And if they want to, I let them write that piece themselves to make sure that voice there is authentic and it is representative of at least a, a certain percentage of that group of people. Because no no people are a monolith. No. So let's just put that out now before someone says shenanigans. And that is important to me intrinsically. And that is not here in this piece of work. Cool. Uh, anything else you want to talk about the book? I never read the book. I did, To
1: be blunt, I didn't even know the book existed until the show came out. So
0: <laughs> uh, we, we travel in different circles, my friend. I, I am in we the do. mythos circle. You're in more of that uh, occult circle, which... Let me tell you now, the mythos has more power than the cult, but that's a larger discussion we could have for later. Well,
1: uh, yeah, that, that's fair. But, I mean, like, yes, you're deeply entrenched in this area. I am, the other hand, am at this moment reading uh, volume two of a seven-volume series of Doctor Who criticism through the lens of alchemy and uh, occultism. So
0: we have slightly <laughs> different tastes in this regard, yes. <laughs> Love it. All right. Lovecraft Country, the TV show. If you followed me online, you'll likely notice that I have not talked really about this show. I commented I was watching it. I commented about a cool few beautiful pieces of scenery, but I have not delved into it. And there is a specific reason about for that. Is I've noticed that if I say something that has been used and weaponized to used against other people, so that has made me very cautious for things that I say and I put out in social media, which you think, well, that can't be true. You post all the time on social media. I do post a lot, but I'm posting it about the book I'm reading. I'm posting the amazing cup of coffee or occasionally that $500 ball of scotch that I somehow got that I am <laughs> doing my gullum impersonation for. <laughs> important. Or I'm important talking about, talk about the industry. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just say that, that 500 hour scotch is very important to talk about. Yes,
0: I think so. <laughs> Uh, Or I'm talking about the industry on a whole and how we can try to change it and make it better. Right. I will frequently not comment on black or marginalized media that I have a nuanced opinion or take on because social media likes hot takes and I don't do hot takes. Right. And having said all that, I will say that the good parts of Lovecraft Country outweigh the bad parts. But we are going to definitely delve into those bad parts. So up front, at the start of the podcast, if you're not seen Lovecraft Country, you should go watch it. Watch it. You should give Misha Green all the kudos in the world for making this show.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, also, I, I suppose we should briefly recap. Um, we talked about it in Loki, but... we. Blah blah blah. Majors may have caused some problems. Blah blah blah.
0: <sighs> and at time of recording, the way we can be so flippant flip is because it has not been decided and the court dates just keep getting pushed out further and further.
1: Right. Right. So we we literally have nothing more to say that we didn't say in, on the Loki episode. But he's the star on this too, so we I, I want to at least acknowledge it. Yes, we're aware. We're still aware.
0: The show itself. Ugh. Oh. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the controversy briefly. The first one I want to start with is it is inherently a piece dealing with colorism, and it does not address colorism at all. And we will go into more about colorism as we go through the episodes. Okay, I want to state that. Any comments before I move on to the next point?
1: Um, I... I... I would say mostly for the audience, but also a little bit for me. Um, maybe it's worth defining. Uh, I mean, I know I know what colorism is, but in in this context, what are we talking about?
0: So color, <laughs> there's so many ways I could describe it. Now, uh, back in the day, <laughs> one of the things they did for Black people is they had a paper bag test, which is if you were lighter than a paper bag, they would let you into places because you were close enough to passing as white. If you're darker, they would do dubiously bad and cruel things to you. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to the concept of passing privilege and it's something that is used for that white people have used against marginalized groups to also cause infighting amongst those groups where you are light enough for us to think that you could potentially be us. So we'll let you do this so we can all have a lower, another class that we consider lower to persecute. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you keep that strife going throughout. And example of colorism in the show is going to be Letty is the lightest, black skin person in the show and letty is constantly put as an antagonist against all the darker skinned people and there's almost a virginal mary aspect added to her character throughout the journey of the show at the expense of all the other darker skinned characters okay um
1: would it be also i was just to say um make sure i understand this uh correct as well Um, One thing I had noticed, and I want to make sure I'm accurately perceiving this, um, she was also very much explicitly presented as the uh, quote-unquote attractive-slash-sexy character, and the fact that she was light as skin, is that another component of this as well?
0: Yes, but that goes into colorism, and then that goes into, uh, equivalently, a form of, like, body shaming. Because even when I first watched the show in the first five minutes, I think that Ruby and Letty's character should have been switched, like, hands down. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But to add on to the colorism bit, there was also a, it was a, a scandal that came out that one of the extras was a lighter skinned black person, and they had that person darken their skin to be in photos and other things. Um, anything else you want to discuss about this?
1: Uh, do we know the composition of the writing room on this one?
0: Uh, I I do not. I know that Misha Green, a uh, uh, black woman, was the lead writer, producer, and driving force behind it. Right, right, okay. Uh, Then we're going to touch on... This is an episode we did not cover, but it is incredibly important that we discuss it at the top of the show, is that they brought in, for like a five-minute window, they brought in a resurrected an indigenous person and they misused the terminology, I believe of a two-spirited person. And they had that person be overly sexualized. And then within five minutes, they had the black gay character, Montrose, kill that character Mm -hmm. because he didn't want them to tell secrets to other people, just kill that character. So within five minutes doing that. And there's more that you can read about online if you want to. But as that's not my background, I'm going to tell you that it exists and tell you that it's important. I think you should read up on it yourselves.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm chuckling because we're we're starting to move into. But besides that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln territory? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, any anything else about those you want to discuss?
1: No. Um... Uh, I think you, you've adequately uh, covered all those topics um, and, and this is, you're right. This is a complicated show to cover for a lot of reasons. So it's better to kind of get the stuff out ahead of time so we can just go through the episode talking about the show itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those were the main points I wanted to cover regarding that before we move into the show proper. the show itself aired, I want to say in around 2020, which was dropped during the height of the one of the spikes for the black lives matter movement at that point in time. Mm. I don't know if you remember those, but this show dropped then. So it was critically well received that first episode because how well done it was. And given the moment when it aired, yep. uh, that critical reception wane through the course of the show from the issues that we discussed and also the show focus more on the trauma aspect of things mm-hmm. and making the trauma plot points than actually delving into them. For instance, I will say Watchmen dealt with trauma, but it didn't, it made it a specific reason to deal with that trauma and not just sort of a, a catch that you'd use to spike up something, to grab attention, to display the trauma and then not follow through with it. For Watchmen, we had that legacy of pain that traveled throughout the character, and we followed a character to the end that had to deal with all of it. For this, they found specific black, horrible atrocities and used them and then moved away from them, but didn't actually deal or cope with it. For instance, I will say that in an episode that we didn't cover, they had Christina, who has immortality, pay people to basically kill her so that she could try to understand the trauma and horror that Emmett Till went through when he was murdered. Mm -hmm. Like at that point I was done with the show when I first watched it. Like that was, Mm -hmm. and if you don't know who Emmett Till is, I'm going to tell you to go look it up because this is history that you should know. And I'm not going to delve into that. Right. And if you still don't want to read about it, there's a movie that came out. I want to say last year that no one went and saw that was an amazing piece about the, a movie about the mother and the choices she made to display the body, which had not been done before, mm. <laughs> called Till. That no one went and saw. Absolutely, it's,
1: and, and I mean it, it. In some ways, when we first I mentioned this in passing, uh, and it turns out erroneously uh, when we covered Watchmen, but it is an interesting moment in time that 2019 2020 moment because. In some ways, they are companion pieces. Uh, um, and In other ways, they're very different. So at one point, I idly debated talking to Chris about maybe doing these in sequence to compare them, but I think it's better to put some distance between them for, for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, because really, for, from our mandate as a podcast, the idea of let's take things that are want to do a genre put them together and then talk about how they're actually not really all that related that much um so it wouldn't have made sense because at that point then the genre becomes black trauma and that's just frankly not a conversation i think any of us want to have um so instead let's, let's talk talk about watchmen in the context of superheroes talk about this distant context of horror it makes more sense
0: and at the time it was a almost brilliant idea which it shouldn't have been so brilliant and revolutionary to tell a horror mythos story historically focused around black characters. That should not have been as groundbreaking as it was, but that goes to a larger conversation about the racism in Hollywood and how Mm -hmm. it's been unfair treatment and Mm -hmm. still is unfair treatment. And once again, I would say that we support the writers on this show and all the strikes currently going on. Yep. Uh, If you don't have anything else, I'm going to jump directly into the show. Let's do it. Episode one, season one, Sundown. Korean war veteran Atticus Freeman travels to Chicago after receiving a letter from his missing father, Montrose, inviting him to discover his family's legacy in Ardham, Massachusetts. Atticus, his uncle George, who writes a green book style travel guide, and his friend uh, Leticia fucking Lewis set off on a road trip to Devon County, Massachusetts. A group of murderous white men chase them out of a town they stop in, but they escape thanks to the intervention of an unknown silver car driven by a mysterious white woman. Later, they encounter a racist sheriff, the racist sheriff of Devon County, who torments them in a sundown race in the sundown county. Just after sunset, the sheriff's deputies force the trio into the woods with the intent of killing them, but the entire group is attacked by vicious monsters they believe to be Uh, for all you Lovecraftian fans out there, don't at me because you could say they're not Shoggoths but there's Shoggoths in the show, so uh, suck it Atticus, (laughs) George, and Letty fight their way out while the police officers perish the Shoggoths are called away by a mysterious noise, in the morning the trio stumbles out of the woods to find an enormous mansion where they're welcomed by a mysterious white man named William who greets them warmly Boom! 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 uh, Uh, um, The the budget spent on this was fantastic.
1: Oh god, hands down, beautiful, lush, lush episode.
0: Oh, and I we'll go into maybe beats. I'm not sure we want to cover it because after the initial talk, I'm a little in that headspace, so I'm working my way around the opening scene of the war in black and white that transitions to color. Mm-hmm. Was spectacular, like that's how I envisioned some of the trenches in World War One. I'm writing Cthulhu stuff, our Mythos related material for some of the soldiers, and when they sort of pop out, and to get the the weird pulp bit for the alien coming down and Jackie Robinson destroying Cthulhu. Ah, oh, ah, oh, that is my favorite meme of all time. It's. One thing
1: I I definitely want to say about the show is that it was confidence. Maybe at times, as we talked about, shouldn't have been as confident as I thought it was. Um, But to start off a show like this, it's like, no, you're going to see some weird shit. And we're telling you right up front, you're going to see some weird shit. And so there's a whole lot of what the hell is going on here, but you're right. It is straight out of the weird pulp tradition. And this show is absolutely channeling that in ways and continually reinforcing it in ways that are just frankly amazing
0: and here I want to take a a beat because when I read I read a lot of reviews when it first came out because you know that's what you do Mm -hmm. and I'm seeing I saw certain group of reviewers complaining that it wasn't Lovecraft enough that they didn't know that they didn't understand the source material and all these other complaints and then I, I was like you but then I I'm also thinking that it's not based on Lovecraft's work. Right. It's based on Matt Ruff's work, who based his work on an interpretation he wanted to tell of Lovecraftian work. Right. So there's multiple layers of distillation. And to hear that to be one of the key complaints and people say they're not going to watch the show also led me to believe there are other reasons they're not going to watch the show. Mm -hmm. Possibly the leads of the show. Right. And I learned a lot of cthulhu forums too.
1: well i mean and then let's be honest um a lot of fandoms have their uh shibboleths which are basically um you have to be x canon pure enough to ride this ride um and, and you and i've talked about through this whole podcast that a lot of times people of color have a higher bar to clear um and and so yeah it's 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 frustrating but also Specifically, the mythos is a really weird place to draw that line because we have, and probably will continue until we die, give Lovecraft a lot of stick. But he was perfectly happy to let people use his shit in a wide variety of ways.
0: He was. Like, um, I in books, where even where I talk about everything in his racism, I do compliment the fact that he's willing to let other white writers engage right. with his mythos material willy nilly, however they want it. Like, that is enormous. That is unbelievable. And it was right. some people so, that came in after him that started putting copyrights on stuff.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, uh, I have a very complicated relationship with August Durleth as a result of that. Um, but, uh, brief digression. Um my company relationship is that he copyrighted a bunch of mythos stuff, um, and also copyrighted a bunch of, um, stuff, uh, that were obviously shakes, uh, Sherlockian pastiches. So while he did a lot of really good writing, he also had no problem stealing other people's IPs, filing up serial numbers and claiming it as his own and protecting it. So that's complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, that said the solar pond stories are actually really good and you should read them. Um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> The weird idea of having a purity test for, of all things, the fucking Cthulhu mythos is deeply weird to me. That's kind of like saying um, this Doctor Who fan fiction isn't accurate enough to Doctor Who canon.
0: <laughs> as as a defender of, of canons, I, I am in utter agreement with you about that, though. like, <laughs> I, I am a staunch believer that canon is important, but I also understand that canon changes for mediums that you're in. And sometimes you have to alter it to make whatever it is you're doing engaging to get new audiences to keep it going. Right.
1: The other thing that's weird about that argument, which goes into actually the episode we're we're watching here, is that um, when mythos stories are good, and I have the personal opinion that most of the good ones are not actually written by Lovecraft, but when they are good, is they use the mythos sparingly, Right. If it's constantly in your face, it stops being scary. Um, mm-hmm. And if it doesn't connect to a human experience, it's not scary, it's just an intellectual exercise. Uh, and this absolutely nails that, right? This episode is like, let's talk about extremely human horrifying experience and then link that to the, the mythos. And it elevates, and uh, elevates a very strange word here, I use, I recognize that, but but it it, it intensifies better word. Both both sides of it. Um, the off is now scarier, and the human horror is now scarier as a result. Um, so uh, uh, by saving it to the very end of this episode, and, but teasing it constantly and, and going, we're, we're almost there, um, is frankly the right way to go. To jump ahead slightly, one of my favorite moments of that is the the gag of, my father is in Arkham, and it's like, Arkham doesn't exist. No, 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 this letter is, no, it's Artem. Uh, you know, it's like it's a great little moment of of watching uh, Atticus kind of slip into his own head about the mythos, and then the the another character going no 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 you're, you're kind of overacting and then of course later on Atticus is proven correct because we know how these kinds of stories go, but it's a moment of of, of delayed gratification. You know horror in a lot of ways is a lot like comedy in the sense if you want to delay that moment as long as possible because it lands better when it does. Um so. So there's not enough mythos stuff in this? Fuck you. There's exactly the right amount of mythos stuff in this.
0: <laughs> and it, I like it also because it is telling of what's going to happen throughout the show. Like that is someone mm-hmm. that's thought about how the show is going to work and put out plot beats throughout it. And they're sprinkled. So they're not heavy. Not not all of them are heavy handed. Like, for instance, with the I'll, I'll, in case, I don't want to talk about it when we get there. But Jackie Robinson and the Bat. Yep. Saving the day becomes important in episode nine out of a 10 episode mm-hmm. arc. Like that is beautiful stuff. And it's still a spoiler ahead that that is a piece that Atticus might not have put together if he hadn't had that vision that we saw in episode in the first opening minutes of episode one. Right.
1: Right. Another thing that, um, Early reviews, I, I've not done a ton of listening reviews, but like, like you, I kind of poke around a, little, a couple spaces, not mythos spaces, but other spaces. Um, and something that no one seems to be touching on, which is, again, deeply weird to me, is it's not very often you have a protagonist whose primary main drive is he's a deeply weird book nerd. I mean, yes, he's a soldier. He's physically fit. He's attractive, blah, blah, blah. But most, at least this episode, a lot of his contributions to the plot, the moments where he shines, moments where he helps solve problems, comes from the fact that he is an obsessive book nerd. And not even like super secret occult text, just like, oh, yeah, I read this Lovecraft story in it like, <laughs> or let me talk about Princess of Mars for five fucking minutes. And <laughs> it's amazing. But
0: that is the most mythos mythos yes. protagonist that you can have like Absolutely. that is spot on
1: that's one thousand again it's the that's why i find this argument so stupid because it's like this is this is almost this is, i won't say the barter plate mythos investigator but it is a good way to take the template and do something interesting with it that i just don't see very often and no one's even remarking on them it's like no he's a giant nerd he's he's he's, he's an intellect he's an intellectual
0: hero and I like how it's just sort of offhandedly put the trauma that he endured is a reason he get, went to become a soldier and during soldier is why he got to buff up and yep. everyone commenting on it throughout the first episode <laughs> yes, to show you that even when he left, he was like a scrawny little nobody and came back buff and as someone that when I joined the army, uh, I came back. So I, j- I joined a little later and I was a, a, a bigger person and I went to the army and I came back. 120 pounds lighter i was like 120 pounds soaking wet chris none of my clothes fit no one recognized me yeah i can believe that and then i choose to spend the next decade or two putting all that weight back on <laughs> it is a, a, a journey <laughs> and, and one that was fun and maybe i'll start the journey into lose again i don't know maybe maybe not
1: never know never know
0: and anything else on this before i get to the bus because i want to touch on the bus no yeah something. go for the bus yeah uh, it was a nice scene to see Atticus and the older woman on the back of the bus with the sign because that is how it was in the 50s. Mm. And the imagery that invokes of having it be an old, uh, I'm not saying older black woman, but uh, a black woman of a certain age, would anyone that's related to history would almost automatically think of Rosa Parks. Right. Who was not the first black woman to sit on a bus. In fact, it was actually a younger woman who I want to say had kids at the time and the movement that was going to have Rosa Parks sit there didn't think she was the best person to do it. History. Read up on it, folks. Um, yeah. And so to then have the entire bus scene that breaks down and them walking together. But when Atticus is telling her about the heroes in his books, her taking a specific note about the Confederate soldier, and this is almost a quote. one of the quotes I chose, is that you can't put an X in front of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful, so pertinent and descriptive of everything, like hands down. And for all those people that said, well, eventually he would've, Lovecraft would turn his views around. You still don't get to put an X in front of it. Like, yeah. it doesn't work like that. And I love that conversation because.
1: To be honest, <laughs> I won't say it's like conversations that we have because our conversations are nowhere near as exciting as those. Uh, but it's more well, Maybe if we wrote them ourselves f- so.
0: though. Maybe if we wrote them before and then we read them back to each other.
1: <laughs> read the script. <laughs> script over episodes. Um, but I mean more of those conversations should be happening in fandom, right? It's the because it was an interesting nuanced conversations. Both sides had valid points in this. It's the um, one side is you're absolutely right. You can't you can't invalidate the inherent problematic elements of the burroughs books they exist they continue to exist and you can't just gloss over them but Atticus also brings the kind of point of like that doesn't invalidate the joy i get from this mm-hmm. um and, and and that and the, the reality like all of these conversations is it's somewhere in the middle um uh the the art is diminished but not extinguished by the by the existence of these things um and it's like the fact that they're having it was a nice meta moment because it's it's they're talking about um, princess of mars but it's also like okay no we're all talking about lovecraft here um and while i recognize that's what the conversation is happening i don't think the lovecraft gets that pass uh but i know that's what the show is trying to do here it's the we they're, they're trying to acknowledge the legacy and trying to at least delve into it on some level which we had mentioned in watch in watchmen sometimes they kind of glossed over a couple of those points so i recognize they, they tried to actually do a stand in to have that conversation.
0: And I think I want to say that part of it, this goes to show the difference in having a showrunner who's that's their lived experience to someone that is read up on it. Yeah. Because in Watchmen, it wasn't front loaded. Watchmen, Mm -hmm. it came way late in it. to like sort of address it. This is an acknowledgement of it at the top to let you know that we understand that. And now we're going to tell you a story. It's not that here's our story. Oh yeah, we should probably mention this to you there's a shifting of importance. Right.
1: Similarly, um, you mentioned the sign in the bus. Uh, That is something that this whole episode does and the whole show, but it's really an episode is relentless. Like, Every time these characters are on the screen somewhere in public, there's always a sign in the background, or a white person staring at them, or there's something going on. It's relentless, and it, very intentionally so. Um, as a white viewer, I became uncomfortable with it, and I realized that was the point. I was supposed to. I was supposed to be uncomfortable with that. Um, so again, like with Watchmen, it was it built up to that premise. Uh, this one's like, no, here's the premise. Here it fucking is. You're not gonna look away from this.
0: And I know I some of the reviews, I, I'm talking about all kinds of things because I have many, many thoughts are all jumbled about right. this morning. Um, some of the reviews I read saying that that is unrealistic. It wouldn't have been that bad. It would have been worse. <laughs> yes. It is that bad now. I can tell you when I walk down the street, when I walk through my neighborhood walking my dog, I have neighbors that do that. Mm-hmm. I have like delivery dudes are coming through the neighborhood. Stop to stare at me in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Are Cars will park at the top of a hill if they see me and wait for me to walk by to make sure I'm not going towards their house. Mm -hmm. In my neighborhood. I want to reinforce this just in my neighborhood where I live and exist. Mm -hmm. So yes, it is that bad and worse. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this, for me, the reason that I guess I glommed onto the show is I can wholeheartedly say that I 90% identify with Tick. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. What? Uh, a big reading black geek that joined the military? I <laughs> wonder. Mm, I wonder. Maybe. I wonder. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. Um. And then to get the fact that when the bus breaks down, they actually have to do the walk that we're discussing. And mm-hmm. I, I almost chose Tick's line that's saying, um, books are like people. But that doesn't describe the show enough. And that's why I chose one I did that actually enc- encapsulates the show best. Mm hmm for our opening quote. But then we get to Uncle George, who is, in fact, my favorite character on this whole show. Yes. Hands down. Uncle George is great.
1: Um, and, I mean, again, it's... It is frustrating that I have to spell this out as, an, as a cool moment, but to see two black men in a bookstore being excited about books is so fucking rare to see on the screen. And I was really into that.
0: I want to point out, you have a show that him walking to a neighborhood, a black neighborhood, and the joy of it is also highlighted. Mm -hmm. Like the show itself delves deep into trauma too much, over the top amount of trauma. But you get these glimpses of what like black joy is. And there should have, if there had been an equal portioning of those, I think it would have benefited the show and they would not have lost as much of their audience that they lost. Right, because it you can't. We've already talked on it every so often that you can't oversaturize in one certain area. Mm-hmm. Yep. And to get tick walking through the neighborhood, so you get to go to the the bar, you get the the encounter out back in the bar. So it's like starts touching on all the different aspects of the neighborhood and some of the dynamics. You get people trying to see who tick is and figuring things out all very nice and it may, gave me a warm fuzzy because i've walked through many a neighborhood like that in, mm-hmm. in my youth and it's nice and it's beautifully shot like there was money spent on the show is what i want to say and that is yeah so rare on a black show to happen that's mm-hmm. why i can't harp enough that the good outweighs the bad yeah there's a lot of high high intention and aspiration that unfortunately was not met but they had the will the luck and the talent to try to do it and i mean it um it, it
1: showed that hbo was willing to had, had a strong belief in the show right um i mean we, we talked about this a little bit in the watchman show too is like uh, uh this is not inconsiderable amount of money uh on a network that has built a brand of putting together quality, visual and written television drama, particularly. Um, And the fact that these two seasons exist is only made more frustrating. In fact, that only two seasons exist, one of each show. Mm -hmm. Um, But it showed that for a couple of years, HBO was really heavily investing in this portfolio.
0: And we have the scene that you already talked about, the Artem and Arkham bit. So mm-hmm. we're going to transition to the night scene where we we meet George, uh, we meet the rest of the family, and we have like the party going at night, and we have Ruby on stage singing. That is a shout out to oh I forgot her name, but there is a famous black rock. I want to say she was also a Christian singer from the fifties who had the same sort of body shape and booming voice that, that uh, Ruby had. Mm-hmm. That was fucking fantastic. If oh, I remember yeah. her name, we'll drop it in the in the schnotes.
1: Um, and, and I mean, that's another thing I actually liked is um, we don't R- Ruby. To be perfectly blunt, she was sexy, right? She was she was presented as a sex symbol, and it was completely believable. And you don't see very many women, not only dark-skinned black women, but just women of, of that kind of size presented in that capacity. And it was completely believable, and I love that
0: but then they swiftly undercut it with the introduction of letty yes like let's yank that carpet from under you right now
1: yeah and and And, it's funny because uh, because the 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 scene is framed where like uh, ruby and letty are fighting right and and they're not they're not happy to and letty's kind of being snarky about i'm sorry ruby's being snarky about letty coming in to sing with her and whatnot and the show is trying to tell me we should be sympathetic to letty and I wasn't, I was like, no, Ruby's absolutely right. You kind of came on stage and stole her thunder for doing her thing and she should be mad at you. And yeah, you're, you're lucky you're getting two days sleeping on her couch.
0: <laughs> and you came to do it because you want money. You didn't come back right. just to see me. You came because you wanted something, which is right. very much a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess to that point, I will digress a little bit and say that as, as an old fogey now, when I watch a musical Rent, I am no longer sympathetic with the squatters. I am sympathetic (laughs) with their friend, their friend. Let me repeat that. Who used to be one of them, but realized I needed money, got a job and has let them squat there for two years and now needs like them to (laughs) two years of squatting. And he is their antagonist now. Like, yeah. Yeah. All right. But so we get the introduction and Letty gets to see who Tick is. Tick sees Letty. And we get that that chemistry, that we're that vibe we're going to get, that these will be our primary two characters because there's going to be a mm-hmm. romance that happens. Um, next morning, we have the three of them. Letty sort of pops up. So we know that she's going to become part of the road trip now. Yep. Because she's going to be dropped off and they like head out together. Mm-hmm. We get... Uh, a little bit of fun, sort of traveling. Oh, sorry, I forgot. D gives the comic book to her dad. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause She yeah. used to draw comics of all of his trips, but this time it features basically her mother character and not her dad anymore. And there was mm-hmm. tension between um, George and Hypatia about her being able to do the trips too, so he doesn't have to do them. So mm-hmm. we create that dynamic and him making a promise saying, Don't worry, next time maybe we can go together. Mm-hmm. So, what you know right there, just from writing, George is going to die.
1: We've established your family in a very short order and everything is happy and there's no tension in your family. Someone's dying soon.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And we get them sort of traveling along. They encounter some, some racism when they actually stop at a place. This is one of the things that I love is when they went to that restaurant and like the walls are all white and they sort of split up. And the gradual realization of what's going on, like, George is engaged, and I think the map or the book trying to figure it out, Tick is looking around, and Letty is in the back, unbeknowingly investigating, mm-hmm. and Tick asking George questions, and George has answers like this. Like, Tick knows something yep. is up, but George has the knowledge, but he's not paying attention. So it shows you a well-built, for role-playing terms, party. Like, that's a great yeah. party that they've built right there. Mm-hmm. I would go on Mythos Investigations with them.
1: Absolutely. And, and it was... <laughs> I actually, in my personal notes, I had written down the Chris Spivey moment of of a man realizing a historical fact to solve a problem. <laughs> Why is the White House painted white again?
0: <laughs> I was just like, oh my God. It w- it, you, all right. You know me too well. No more podcast. <laughs> Take a break. Done. And so we get the car chase, which out of town, which is nice, but the pinnacle of that is when they encounter the racist sheriff and mm-hmm. you get to see that dynamic have you been pulled over multiple times by the police. And there's a level, there's a level of fear and anxiety as a black person, when you're stopped by the police. like hands down, like yep. you don't know if you're going to be walking, well, driving away from the situation, either being incarcerated. If you're lucky <laughs> or being buried later. Mm -hmm. And so that fear displayed there was more intense than like the monster scene that we'll get later for me as a viewer. I completely believe that. And so I I guess a random tidbit about me since we're sharing on the Lovecraft podcast is that when we (laughs) drive a lot of places as a family, I frequently let my wife drive and I will not drive. Mm -hmm. So we, we are harassed less. It's, it's 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 awful that you have to be a tactical about it but i also completely understand it there you go folks real real world information early in the morning well actually it's late morning to this morning <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah and... like um I, I i one thing i we, we you jumped ahead but the one one of the small bits that scene that like first of all i really love the fact that the slowest car chase scene in the world was made intensely suspenseful and that actual people doing actual car chases could learn something from that scene was shot in stage <laughs> Um, because they're literally going 25 miles an hour and it was super suspenseful. Uh, but the other one is, um, I loved Tick's moment of him starting to get back to the car and stops goes, is it legal to make a U-turn here? It was a, on the surface, it was a casual conversation, but it was him going, wait, there's a trap here, and again catching it before the trap was sprung. Yep. Really reinforcing just how smart Tick is.
0: And then you get that same... Uh white racist energy that Mm -hmm. realizes they've been outsmart but they still have some sort of power in that situation and they will still do something to diminish or dehumanize you yep yep and you get to see letty's face as she watches what tick has to do Mm -hmm. which in of itself is almost a telling moment it is a telling moment since we watch more of the show and we know the colorism involved in it which gives you an idea that possibly letty has never had to do that True. So, like, there are all these things spread throughout, which is why I was expecting a larger conversation somewhere about colorism in the show that Mm. never happens. Mm. And they make the turn, and it is the slowest of slow (laughs) drives, and it is so intense. I know. When you think about it, they're literally racing the sun. Like, that is your. (laughs) Yeah. How could that be suspenseful? But it is. So good, like the acting, the cinematography—it is all exceptional. And you get more of the racism when he knows that he can't get them since he made a promise. So instead, he starts trying to like hit the back of their car to disrupt them. Mm-hmm. Like it goes back again to reinforce that you cannot trust whitey. No offense. Mm-hmm. No, nope, not taking white people suck. <laughs> and they they escape the racist sheriff or so they believe. Right. Who has already called in to his the rest of his team to have them waiting for them to show up to show you that even if you win you still lose. Mm-hmm. Like that is how it works.
1: Right. But but again like this goes back to I'm I'm just obsessed about people saying there's not love Lovecraft in this. Um but like that that's a Lovecraftian story, right? That that is a mythos story right there. It's like no matter how smart you are, no matter how well you planned art, you still lose. It's just that it doesn't involve a bug-eyed monster. That's the only difference. But otherwise, structurally, it is a mythos story. Something that has more power over you ultimately will win no matter what you do. That's the mythos.
0: Yes. Which is one of the reasons why. So for me, I first encountered I'm going to digress a little bit. Uh, I first encountered Lovecraft in a state sale. I may have mentioned this in a podcast. I don't know if I mentioned mm-hmm. it here or Onyx Path podcast that, that you interviewed me on. Uh, so in case folks didn't know, the reason this podcast exists is that Eddie has interviewed me. I want to say three times for Onyx Path. Yeah. And I think the last time was just us, and we got along really well. And I suggested, hey, let's do a podcast together. And I said, Eddie thought no, it'll be a
1: terrible idea. We certainly won't do that. And we certainly should never do superheroes for 39 weeks.
0: <laughs> he thought I was joking. Which of course he didn't realize I, I don't joke about that. I, I I put it out as a joke to catch you off guard and then I got gotcha. you. <laughs> here we are, like two years later, happily still stuck together to some extent. <laughs> um Distance doesn't matter. It it's a spiritual connection that that binds us together over No, should I not do this bit?
1: No, it's 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 the friends
0: we made along the way, right, exactly. Damn it, if you're gonna make it a quick, easy joke, it's not to say it. Um, low effort. So, <laughs> I first encountered Lovecraft in a estate sale when I was around 13. Uh, mm-hmm. An estate sale is when someone passes away, they need to send in someone to like box up all their stuff and watch it till the movers come the next morning. And in Alabama, they don't want to pay a lot of money, so they get a group of kids, eight of us are about 13. <laughs> to sit in this dead person's house all night with our sleeping bags around like a uh, a little flashlight together. And I they said, anything you want in the house, you can take and it's yours, as long as it's not bigger than like a TV. So very narrowed guidelines. And I found a bunch of books and I took, God, what was it, uh, 30 books? Because each individual wow. book is not bigger than a TV. And if you don't specify, Chris will get you. <laughs> that is correct, yeah, technically correct. And one of the books I found was like a complete works of H.P. Lovecraft and I didn't know who it was at the time. And I sat there and I was in my sleeping bag with my flashlight and I was reading some different stories. And the one that stuck out to me most was like the outsider. But that overwhelming feeling that no matter what you did, no matter how smart you are, you can't win or succeed resonated with me as a 13 year old living in Alabama who was some people would say overly smart definitely overly talkative (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that is one of the reasons why i have such a complex relationship with lovecraft like the core idea behind it resonates with me if not the pros themselves right chris's digression corner um we can jump ahead if you want to i mean sorry go ahead
1: I was gonna say, like, honestly the the like you said part of Shagath fight is kind of the least interesting part of the episode in a lot of ways
0: yeah <laughs> but uh, this is for people that care a little bit about the mythos a-, a shoggoth at least in lovecraftian text is this big massive like gelatinous cube with like a bajillion eyes it rolls around and does stuff for this they've changed that to almost uh warwolves if you're if anyone here is familiar yeah. with excalibur comics in their look but they function almost like uh furless vampiric werewolves okay because they're nocturnal because they fear the light but they're big like werewolves mm-hmm. and when they butt you you eventually turn into one of them
1: but again like um the the you said the argument was that they weren't chargots and people were mad about that but tick in the episode described chargots the way you did so it take knows th- what Shoggoths are from the original material, which means the writers knew, and this is an intentional change. Yeah. So to imply that they got it wrong is, is just, there, there's no evidence on the screen that that's
0: true. But then that goes easily into the fact that like Lovecraft, Lovecraft himself was a person that existed in this world, which is why they're able to read Lovecraft books. So right. it goes to the fact that maybe his Id- information he has is shoddy. Right, And this is what it really is, which is a nice layered touch. Mm-hmm. Similar
1: to how um, nearly all of the Sherlock Holmes stories were written by Watson. And therefore, Watson as a fallible person could possibly have gotten things wrong. And we have lots of gaps to inject things into the, the Holmes
0: canon. Yep. And then it allows the characters to have to make logical conclusions about things that they see and piece things together. Like when they're in the cabin, Uncle George referenced it as a vampire since that guy seems to be changing like a very nice touch and how we get the fact that they are vulnerable or scared of light, how vampire mythology vampires are. Uh, I will point out that there's attack, but we get to see Letty's superpower. You're about to see it right now. And do you know what that superpower is? What is it, Chris? Letty fucking Lewis could outrun Jesse Owens. Did you see that stride? Uh, like fuck! Like that is the best superpower to have in a horror game, hands down. Doom.
1: I mean, I will say she is a woman in a horror story, so they always get bonuses to their speed. So,
0: <laughs> and she is an appropriate shoes for it, regardless of everything else. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm. Yes. Um. Then we get like her crashing back in the. Sheriff transforms to a monster. They get killed by Tick. Uh, then they stumble into the mansion where they meet William that morning. The scene of them stumbling up to the mansion—that instant contrast in the day compared to the horror they experienced at night—beautiful. I love the just the stark, stark shift that that presented.
1: Yeah. Um. I have a comment, but it's kind of an awkward place. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it here, but um, it, it does. I have to talk about episode two very, very briefly. Um, one of the things that I loved when I watched this show is that um, it is both a modern drama slash horror show and also an evolution of both the Monster of the Week stuff we've been watching the past couple of weeks and also the novels themselves. Because, like, each episode, there is kind of a self contained plot um, to the point where you can you can watch these episodes in isolations and still kind of get the whole plot. You don't necessarily have to follow all of the threads through, although there are very strong threads through, me wrong, it's still a serialized show. Um, but it also felt like an anthology of short stories that happen to have similar characters linking them together. Um, so structurally, it felt like it's coming from the tradition of something like Supernatural just as much as something like Watchmen, which was very much... Well, we talked about the, the long movies, right? Um, so it was really interesting to me to see that this is kind of structured a bit like older television, uh, because this is the episode where we run into the shuggoths, and next episode is the episode we run into, you know, the, the next monster, which I won't go into yet. Um, uh, so, I mean, it was, it was really a neat evolution of an older form while still keeping the, HBO style, heavily serialized structure that they're known for in 2020. Um, So it was a a little structural thing. And again, I I personally think it's probably a nod more towards the pulp novels themselves because pulp novels were very short, generally speaking. Um, And a lot of them were short stories that were published in various different magazines, wherever they can get work from, then probably compiled later by a very small press. Um, So it it had that vibe of, uh, this was a writer probably around 1925, who wrote these stories um, and just kept using the same character because it was easy to dash out a story in a weekend with the same character and try to sell it to a magazine and then put them together into a book. Um, It was a neat little structural touch that I really liked and I felt like it it made the show stronger because you could watch an episode and get, like this episode has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a cliffhanger, which is again, very serialized, um, but it's also almost in the literal serial tradition. But on top of all of that, it's so distinctly the show that the cliffhanger is, oh shit, it's a white guy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like that is a genuine moment of terror for these characters. That is, but that is a real cliffhanger for this show. Um, So it's, it's a lot of layers. This is working on just from a structural standpoint that I really, really appreciate it. I'm like, I don't know if how much thought went into this. I, I am inclined to think that this is all intentional given the caliber people are talking about that worked on it. Um, but uh, it that it means that this show is working on okay, um, cosmic horror show, show horror uh, horror show about being black in, in you know the 20th century, or in general, um, a monster of the week show, a serialized show, an homage to pulp novels, and 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 there's like so many things that are happening all at once to the point where maybe that's why it felt a bit heavy on the trauma because it had so many things going on. That it wasn't room to let the characters just breathe. It was maybe a little too structured, but I was just really appreciative of the fact that this was, like I said, a nod towards older television structures.
0: I think what it is is that they got a copy of Harlem bound and they read it and they were like, man, this guy, Chris Spivey is a genius, but yes, it's a role-playing book. So we're not going to contact him, but let's, let's, right, let's take some his greatness. <laughs> That's that. That is my now internal head cannon. <laughs> Any other comments about uh, episode one? No, let's move on. Season one, episode two. Whitey on the moon? All right, let me do my uh, my spoken word one more time. <laughs> William explains that the mansion is Arden's Lodge. Well, <clears throat> strike that. Let's redo that. William explains that the mansion is Arden's Lodge, designed by Titus Brithwaite. A enslaved traitor and founder of the occult secret society called the Sons of Adam. George realizes that Atticus is a descendant through implied sexual assault of Titus and thus a premier member of the Sons. Because of this powerful heritage, Samuel, the current owner of the lodge and leader of the Sons, plans to use and potentially sacrifice Atticus in an upcoming ritual. The white woman who played such a large role earlier was revealed to be Samuel's daughter, Christina who has a whistle that controls the Chagas. After telling Atticus that not all white people are bad, (laughs) she traps the travelers in their respective rooms with a magical force field. They eventually break out and rescue Montrose, Atticus's father, who George had earlier deduced was being held captive in a nearby village. Samuel stops him, shooting and killing Letty and seriously wounding George. Atticus agrees to cooperate in the ritual to save their lives but the magic backfires as a black former enslaved woman in a 19th century dress appears implied to be Atticus's ancestor to aid them, turning Samuel and the other sons to stone and burning down the mansion. Atticus escapes the fire in a long run, only discover that Letty has been resurrected and George succumbed to his wounds.
1: Right. Uh, I wanted to start with something insightful, but the first thing I want to think of is I just love moving on up as the opening song to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> as a man of a certain age.
0: <laughs> I, I, I second that. And the, the scene that each of them getting to enjoy the thing they love. Yes. And to see George and just the books and like smelling them, taking him out, putting them to the side, mm-hmm. like Letty trying all the different clothes. It is a, a joyous moment that you know will soon be shattered.
1: <laughs> right. And, and again, it's, you see two of the main characters, because let's be honest, they're being seduced, right? Right, They're being uh, seduced by by the comforts of the house. And Atticus is like immediately going, no, this is a trap. Um, and the show does a good job at this stage of, they did a little bit in episode one, but in episode two of all of the characters think Atticus is just a little too paranoid, a little too suspicious. And so there's, there's always kind of slow pushback of like, oh, you should just enjoy it. But Atticus is always right. Uh, and that's an interesting through line through this early part of, of the show of Atticus just continually proving that his suspicions are usually correct. Um, it reinforces his intelligence. Um, it, it's a nice balance of, yes, i book smart, but also I went through a very complicated and messy war. So we as the viewer could go could could be ptsd could be shell shock, but it's not and it never
0: is and he survived his father which we get to understand more but that is even sprinkled throughout all these episodes that it was not a loving relationship right right but the other thing i really love is this is the
1: thing i was trying to struggling about timing wise um this very much feels like the pulp writer going we need a reason for atticus to be part of the sons of adams so let's give him this sudden revelation of his family history, but it's not an arbitrary plot device. It builds on other stuff. I and mean, then it's so structured very well. It's like, it seems like it's an out of nowhere reveal, but it actually goes somewhere else. Um, so that that's a really cool and interesting touch. And, and it's, it, it ends up leading towards a new conversation, a new uh, uh, way of exploring things, but also is very much the crap, I need a reason to get my protagonist into this plot this week on my cereal what do i do so it's it's perfect because it works well but it still keeps that flavor
0: i'll also point out that it plays perfectly with history and how the Mm -hmm. founding fathers weren't enslavers who did force themselves on black people and who had children with them and then still enslaved their children Mm -hmm. who may or may not had slightly better privilege but were still enslaved like ben franklin um, and a, an array of other people. So mm-hmm. when you think about your founding fathers, remember, they're all mostly, let me rephrase that, enslavers. And they may have said that they would free their enslaved people upon my death. <laughs> right. And, and I may again, live another show, 40 years.
1: <laughs> right. Um, but again, this show uh, uh, did what Watchmen kind of no, not Watchmen. Um, uh, we, we had a similar scene in uh, Sleepy Hollow that kind of lightly address this and this show more directly tackles that um, uh, mm-hmm. of the, um, uh, the the direct thing of kind to his slaves does not mean what that code me- thinks it means.
0: And we get the the great scene of all of them dancing and then they get called out for breakfast with uh, a bell if I remember properly. yeah which in of itself is kind of insulting because if you think about it, bells are frankly used to call servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and the quarters they are in while they look luxurious i think might have been servant's quarters too based on how large the mansion was that is speculation on my part i have to rewatch that last part but the bell calling definitely is reminiscent of that
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and only atticus is the one who questions that everybody else is like oh okay it's time for for the meal and atticus is like what was that and he gets explained to him and he doesn't seem satisfied with the explanation
0: and then even when they sit down for breakfast they atticus questions all of them and they don't remember what happened last night which gets him to put together that something has happened to his friends as he Mm -hmm. keeps trying to explain it to them and as they're having a very intense conversation between atticus and george to the side you have letty who uses the bell to call the servant. So if you missed it up there, we're gonna put it right here and make it obvious for you what we just said. Right. And then the two of them look shocked as she just sort of looks back at them saying, what, I'm calling for a servant. Which goes back again to the colorism piece where the two of them would not have thought to have done that because that is not the experience they would have had compared to potential experiences that Letty would have had. Mm -hmm. Like constantly reinforcing the colorism but they're not saying it or discussing it. So that makes it incredibly problematic. Right. Sure uh, particularly sure because sure. the show
1: is very clearly happy to talk about other aspects of it. So this is a place where the omission is particularly jarring. Now that you bring it up, I can totally see that.
0: And this is by the middle of the second episode. I'm like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. not even the middle, the uh, first, fourth of the second episode. Mm-hmm. And they eventually get, Atticus takes them in the car. They see that Woody's been repaired; it's not damaged, and they go to the village. Oh, I, I love the village of cultist. I'm sorry, the village of just innocent people living their daily lives. <laughs> I mean, were, were you, was I the only one
1: getting kind of pseudo prisoner vibes off of that whole thing?
0: <laughs> I was thinking Wicker Man.
1: Oh, that, that's even better. Folk, yeah, that that's actually a much better analogy.
0: Just like hands down. And then when we get the, not the sheriff, but the the game warden, we'll call her, with a, and a nod yeah. to uh, Watchman, that sort of <laughs> runs him off. And you get George deducing what's going on, like the stone tower and everything else. Realize there's probably a prison or something underneath it. Like beautiful investigative skills. Mm-hmm. Love it. And if you didn't know before, George is going to die this is when you would definitely know that George is too much of an investigator to be alive for the next eight episodes. Right. Yeah. You're too useful. You got to go buddy. (laughs) And we get our chase in the woods, but what I do like, I'm going to fast forward us to the part where Atticus demands that they lift the spell from George and Mm Letty, which is a great moment because they instantly start screaming from the horrors they saw which then makes you question whether or not Christina was being benevolent to try to erase that memories from them and whether or not it was better that they know the actual truth. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And it's, there's an interesting tightrope happening here because uh, in terms of the dialogue, there's a a lot of very neutral conversations here, and you could be confused as to maybe what's going on. But the cinematography and the acting, there is no ambiguity. These people are the villains of the piece, right? Um, Christina is not someone who wants to help you. Everything, all the iconography points towards these people want to hurt them. Uh, So it's an interesting tight walk because there's no suspense from the audience perspective, but we have to the characters, you to have a reasonable doubt to make them not seem stupid. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it's I'm, I'm still kind of in awe that how they managed to pull that off because that is so difficult to do because usually you need to either lean into uh, an aside or a, an image that only the audience can see and say, nope, they're obviously evil, so we know, or you end up having uh, uh, characters acting like idiots just to kind of get the plot moving along. But, but everything, every step is extremely plausible in how this comes across um, where the character's like, I'm, un- I'm unsure of their motivations. Like when we do, I'm just going, no, 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 no. There, there, there's no, there's no debate. What are you doing? Get out of there. Right.
0: I'm going to jump directly to the dinner. Is there anything you want to discuss before no. the dinner?
1: Oh, I mean, the only other thing I was mention is, um, uh, uh there are little moments of humor that are just pure genre humor that I really love. Like the when the force fields go up, when Atticus bounces off the force field, that is sh- straight up Star Trek bullshit, right? It's the the physical <laughs> acting of I have to hit an invisible wall that I know is not there and bounce off it to sell that there's an invisible wall there. I'm like that is sixty sci fi acting, and it was it was so obviously just a little the moments of like I thought that was hilarious but nothing about the scene was funny. Um, Same with the Artem moment. There's there's actually tiny little bits of humor that I wish there were more of because I think it would have helped leaven the whole show because the show was clearly trying to have fun with this on on, on some level by playing with the, no, we are really huge fans of these genres and we want to really showcase our love of them. Um, Whereas I think when we watched Watchmen, Watchmen gave itself the room to go, no, we're occasionally going to do some really genuinely funny or uh, appreciative moments because we love these comics. Um, and I think the show didn't give itself enough room to do that. So when you see those little moments, it's almost like, I wish I had seen a little more of that.
0: Oh, agreed. And uh, at yes, the dinner, dinner, we have, Letty doesn't get to go to dinner because not only are they racist, they're also sexist at the time, which a lot of, from reading the clubs were gentlemen's clubs and yep. there were no ladies allowed. hmm and we have both of them dress the nines to go in to disrupt the entire uh, white dinner, just showing up and everyone's staring at them and to then have George break down what their rules say that they have to adhere to in a book that he found, which we know is placed by Christina for him to find. Right. So you can see that Christina has a larger plan that she's working on. Mm-hmm. And to see tick, give an order that people, if they believe what they say they do have to obey and there's that struggle to like i don't want to take this order from this black man i am a, a white person of powered privilege why do i have to do this and what it just takes one of them to break for all the rest of them to do the same
1: going back to your comment about this being a perfect party it was straight up george just rolling uh persuade checks and then atticus <laughs> following up with the intimidation check Um, because you see George is quoting chapter and verse of the rules, and then Andrew's going, so that means get the fuck out. And I was like, that is so (laughs) perfect.
0: (laughs) It it works on everyone except Samuel, who you find doesn't believe in the beliefs. He's just using it as a tool, Mm -hmm. which goes back to showing um, layers of power and structure inside of each other. And usually the people at the top don't really care about the people that are working for them. And we're just using them and putting on a show like that is a a nice layered showing of how things work when you peel away the other pieces of it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, We get them freeing Montrose who Montrose actually freed himself. You find out. Right. So convenient TV time. I will will give that one to them (laughs) given they even said his favorite book was like the Count of Monte Cristo. (laughs) Yes. And him being upset with him for coming and saying that he didn't write the letter to tick which goes back and makes sense because in the first episode they're like this handwriting doesn't seem like montrose's style yeah it's true yeah so again showing thought remembering they did that and then following up following up on it like these are little touches that i as a writer love and frequently look for nitpick so i'm I'm giving them all the kudos for these things
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely um and, and even like in uh the first episode, they also, um, at one point in time, George had a copy of uh, a different Dumas book. Um, and so, like, them mentioning Dumas again is like, okay, they're, they're even, even things that don't necessarily need to be reinforced, they still do. Uh, there's attention detail that I really, really liked.
0: We get the great escape attempt where they're inf- filling each other in on everything, and we get another fucking force field. And I love these force fields. I love them so much that I, I squeed when I saw it the first time. I was like, yes! Yes! And, and they, spent, money, we they get,
1: spent, like, good money on the CGI of those force fields.
0: It, it's important to sell those force fields, otherwise... <laughs> and we get the scene where we have George and Montrose... Having a talk that Tick may not be Montrose's son, which is an interesting thing, mm-hmm. and they're talking about their own dynamic, and you can tell how intense it is because even while George is lying on the bed dying, they're having a fight about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there's one of the things that um, I think really helps this show tensely is that everyone has very human relationships. There, there there's maybe Letty a little bit, but most everyone uh, has strong character motivations for what they're doing. So like, even though it's a heavily plot driven show, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like everything comes naturally from the character motivations, even though structurally they're very clearly falling into, like I said earlier, different monster of the week plots effectively. Um, so, so it, it's, it's, it feels very natural. And of course the actors are absolutely doing their damnest to sell that and, do, and make doing a wonderful job. Um, but it feels like a very real conversation in this, when you think, take a step back and think about it, completely batshit situation.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to jump ahead. and We have the, the ritual that goes wrong because of the inter- intervention of Tick's ancestor. Mm-hmm. And it was a good special effect. And then yeah. we get the realization when Tick escapes that George is dead.
1: Mm-hmm. And Letty has been resurrected. Yep. And it's literally,
0: literally a uh, Jesus back into existence, you'd say.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, uh, again, uh, um, one of the things I love about uh, the Weird Pulp era is, I've used the word for confidence, um, it, it just boldface presents stuff and said this is just what's going on um and it's like yeah this w- this is the episode where you d- we're dealing with magic we're doing with evil magicians and so you're gonna see a lot of evil weird magic shit and so of course we're gonna have a character come back from the dead because that's what you do in these kinds of sh- episodes <laughs> but what's interesting and we'll talk about this more in the next episode again because there's some weird structural stuff happening here um is that the one thing the show does differently is it keeps the consequences of each of these genres that's chopping chopping through so the fact that she's coming back to life that's a consequence that sticks and goes on. Um, And so other episodes have to live with the decisions of the previous episodes, which again, feels very Pulp Writer trying to crank things out and going, oh wait, no, I did this in The Shadow Novel 14, so I'm just, when I have to do this other, I have to remember that. Um, It's it's little touches of, of people who just really clearly love genre TV.
0: Yeah. All right, let's move on to the last episode for this one season one episode nine rewind 1921 hypatia returns to chicago to find atticus letty and montrose struggling to keep Dee alive after her being cursed ruby summons christina who uses hypatia's blood to reset the curse but warns him that because lancaster was the only one who knew the curse it can't be fully lifted christina then visits and taunts a dying lancaster and convinces ruby to aid her in her quest for immortality, even after revealing that the spell will kill Tick. The others use the multiverse machine <laughs> Multiverse Machine Traveling back in time to nineteen twenty one Tulsa, where Tick's family held the Book of Names before it was destroyed in the Tulsa race massacre. Upon arriving in nineteen twenty one, Tick, Letty and Montrose witness a young Montrose being beaten by his father. The adult Montrose flees. Tick goes looking for Montrose and finds him watching his younger self rebuke a potential love interest, Thomas due to his struggling with internalized homophobia and the external oppression of the time before the pair of them, as well as a young George and Dora are set upon by a white mob who succeed in killing Thomas. Tick comes to everyone's rescue. Letty is saved from attackers by Tick's family even though she was shot and she's still invulnerable and goes in the house who hid in their house. As if as it is attacked by another mob, Letty convinces takes great grandmother to hand over the book of names by promising to safeguard her family and their legacy. And Letty slow walks through the bombing and fire and death of untold black people towards the portal and all of them return to 1955.
1: And so now we're in episode nine. The show goes, Okay, so now we're going to do Stargate. <laughs> Stargate, Stargate slash was a good Quantum Leap. Yeah. <laughs> and it just does it. It just. There's a multiverse machine. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, b- before we get into it, figuring out the third episode for this run was probably one of the hardest things I have had to do for the show. That mm-hmm. debate between episode six. But. That character doesn't really show up in the other pieces enough. So I didn't do that one. Mm-hmm. Episode seven, which was Hypatia's journey to get all the stuff that she has, or right. this one. But I chose this one for a specific reason in the end because it highlights the relationship between Tick and Montrose and George and Montrose and Montrose's own internal struggles.
1: Right. And it, again, I mean, this is. Wind genre TV is at its most powerful, frankly. It's the, let's use the trappings of this utterly ludicrous concept to tell a completely human story. Um, and it's, I mean, we talked a lot about the time travel episode we covered in uh, Watchmen, right? And we, 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 I at least really heavily praised Uh, the structure and how they use the structure to tell an emotional story about a woman having an entire romantic relationship in the course of a dinner. Um, And this is a a different version of that same trick uh, done equally well of let's, let's talk about, let's, let's take this ludicrous concept and all of this aggregate stuff we've built up over eight episodes. And in the process of that, make Montrose an utterly sympathetic character when we've had no reason to like him for most of this show.
0: This is a flashback episode done right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there's no islands. There's no
0: because <laughs> it is literally telling their history. It is a flashback to when they were. Time travel used, but still, to give us all that. But it's also a nice touch that it reinforces how I mentioned at the start of the show. That it adds and takes vision to what happened Mm -hmm. with the baseball bat. Him saying a very specific line that Jackie Robinson said to him. So Mm -hmm. that is very cyclical and nice. And it also shows a strong connection to family, how important family is. Be it um, a blood family or in a sense like a found family. Mm -hmm. Because Montrose and George and... Dora became a found family based on the massacre they went to. Mm-hmm. And that felt like a sort of relationship that couldn't be broken regardless of everything else around them. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I, I don't have much else to,
1: to say about that. I, I, I kind of want to pivot briefly. Um, yeah. We're uh, pivoting show. This one of the things I like about this episode in particular is, and this goes back to my earlier point about Tick being a book nerd and why that's important uh, is because Hypatia uh, spells out, here are the rules of time travel in this, show. I mean, just straight out of Doctor Who techno-babble of here's how time travel works, right? And it's specifically, it's a multiverse. She's been to different earths. And so she's like a little vague on, I mean, you're not going back in time, you're going to a parallel earth. And Atticus is like, no, I've read science fiction. We can't change the past. So, Atticus is arguing a different theory of time travel purely based on the stories he's read. <laughs> and it is a, a level of self awareness that is just staggering because it's the show going, We're going to present a, a, a completely thought out version of time travel and tell you it's okay to it change the past because here, it's a multiverse. And so it's okay. And then Atticus going, No. If <laughs> you can't do that. And then it all ends up being actually the time travel version of everything ultimately clicks together. That, that's the time travel theory we're going with is that you can't actually change the past. Everything falls into place. Um, but it's not done in the prescriptive way of the doctor going, you, know, you can't change the past, not one line. It's rather the protagonist going, I've read too many of these stories and I know what happens to step on the butterfly. Cause I've read that story. So I, we don't want to do this. And it, it, it's just a great moment of, again, completely character-driven time travel nonsense, not completely arbitrary plot-driven time travel nonsense.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, I love it. And oh, before, since I skipped ahead the time travel piece, it is another issue that I have that we mentioned at the top of the show is the portrayal of Ruby in Ruby Story throughout the entire course of the show. Mm-hmm. Like, her overwhelming desire to be white, her willingness now to sacrifice Atticus to help Christina, and all the other problems associated with that. I want to make sure that it's something that we mentioned. And also the blatant, like, amazing amount of trauma that they put the character D through throughout the course of the show. Yeah. And you can say it's for the story, but the way it was done is too over the top. I guess is what I want to say.
1: Right. I mean, uh, the, one of the things that episode nine showed me, and then when, again, this is where I think the format of our show helps me to see this a little clearer. Cause I didn't notice it the first time I watched it. Every single protagonist in this show has been traumatized by this point. All of them. No, let's get, I mean, Hippolyta is maybe the only she she's been traumatized too, but also she's turned into the doctor, so it's kind of okay. But even then, she's kind of in the Dr. Manhattan school of I am now too far above your petty concerns to be able to engage with you anymore. Um, but everyone is just deeply, deeply traumatized, and uh, and we have this awkward moment of with, with the Montrose story. Like, I'm the I really loved it, like, it's like, yes, I mean. Frankly, there should be more black queer relationships on screen in general. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, yep. and he the, the 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 complex relationship that he and George and his wife had, and the it, how that all pans out is is all very organic and telling. And yet, at no point, you know, do they also address okay, the reason why he didn't say this was because it was illegal to be homosexual at this time, right? So, I mean, it, it, it's it's one piece where it's like, one of the few moments where I'm like, actually, I think you need one more step of trauma because if you don't know a bit of history, you don't understand why he's so terrified of this. And it's like, it's not, yes, it's because he's black, that's obviously a huge part of it, but also separately, it is illegal. Um, when, when the, uh, I can't even say the line because it's just two slurs in a row, um, but it, it's the, he's being, he and his boyfriend basically are being hunted down both because they're black and because they're gay. Uh, and, and it was perfectly legal to do that to either category. So double is, is, you know, uh, a, a jackpot from a, a bigger perspective. Um, but the and shows really mention that at all. Um, so that's one place where I want a little bit of
0: weird stuff, but I want to take a moment to definitely point out something to for our listeners is that media has a tendency to overly display black people having a stronger prejudice against um, LGBTQI than other groups of people, and that's not true. That is a Mm -hmm. a media projection, and I wanna make sure that I state that on our podcast while we're talking about that. And that it is totally a fake lie that the media is promoting. And Mm -hmm. it happens, but it happens from all the different groups uh, roughly the same amount but media has a tendency to try to villainize black people right yeah um, so uh, for
1: me uh, again again it's like you know uh, uh, I, I come from a queer family so I mean I'm, I'm a little more uh, inclined to the the, the the queer presentation at the point um, I was really excited to see a complicated interesting queer relationship that I was just not expecting. Like, like, it came, it didn't come out of nowhere. It's one of the things that you see it and, and you go, oh, everything in the past, it falls into place now. This, all, this is clearly building to this. And using time travel to explain that is a perfect example using genre tropes to, to, to sell that relationship. Um, but for a show that was so good about presenting the historical horror, horror the horror, the horror of the historical opponents they were going through, it was a weird omission to me. Because that was such an easy thing to kind of say, we would have died. You know,
0: and to to move us ahead because I think we're running a little long. Yeah, it we get to see the importance of family and like the black community. And if you don't know a lot about history, there were a lot of all black towns because a lot of white people at various points in time says, "Why don't you go form your own communities?" Mm-hmm. And there's some black people who said, "You know what? We fucking will go form our own communities." And they went and formed their own communities, and they were incredibly successful. And those same white races said, "Fuck." <laughs> we want what you have. Right. And so they would come and kill and terrorize and steal from those black people that they already had oppressed and kicked out that forced them out of their own societies to reintegrate them in. Mm-hmm. It is a constantly ongoing struggle of a, a, a power dynamic and the power player in that reoppressing the people that don't have the power to stop it constantly. And it is, a perfect representation of the mythos that you cannot win. All you can do is struggle for one more good day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last thing I want to say about this is going to touch on colorism and Letty watching all these darker skin people die and burn around her. Hypatia mm-hmm. is dying, trying to keep a portal open. And we've seen, we've seen Letty's superpower is to run and with her immortality given to her by a white woman, slow walks through a massacre to the portal. And I mean like slow walks. And I understand it is visually beautiful, but from a storytelling perspective, that tells me everything I need to know. Right. Um, And it's, again, it's the
1: weird moment of like, this spell she, she died she came back and now because of the magic spell she has this ability to be immortal functionally and so the show's trying to again play with the consequences of decisions of earlier stories that it went through um but that one just landed weird to me too uh because it was like if you're immortal why don't you, you just hold the portal open because then nobody has to die
0: <laughs> she didn't have the conduits that hypatia had from traveling oh fair but still um,
1: I don't know, maybe, maybe it was just, maybe it's just also the um, case where the core story of Montrose ends up kind of throwing, everything, it's so strong and powerful that maybe everything else feels weaker by consequence and then maybe what's going on here in my head um, because that, that, that Montrose story is just, I mean, oh God. Uh, just hearing him narrate the story as you're watching the brutality, uh, I, I had to pause while watching that, I'm like, I need a minute because that was just, and the actor just he did he's not overstating the emotion; he's just very quietly explaining it, which is exactly the right way to kind of pitch that. Um, he was so when you get, one of the greatest so cut, actors of our time, yeah, yeah. So when you cut back to Letty just kind of holding someone's hand and burning, watching someone burn to death, it's like I know what you are trying to go for; you are trying to juxtapose those, but it doesn't feel nearly the same.
0: And we actually skipped a one another scene that's really important for montrose where he got to go to like a dance mm-hmm. of like other gay men and that was like a really powerful scene too it was either dance or vision that he had because i i only watched this series once when it first came out and for this mm-hmm. podcast because mm-hmm. i said that bit about christina and them paralleling into emmett, emmett till yeah. did it for me i was out like yeah <laughs> But that was like another great scene if you haven't watched the whole thing. It's something that's worth mm-hmm. considering to watch. Yeah. Uh, any closing thoughts on Lovecraft Country? Um,
1: for me, uh, I feel like Lovecraft Country is a great example of why we need to do ambitious television. Um, because we've talked about it. It's messy in a lot of ways, right? I mean, structurally, it's not messy at all. Um, but it, it's complicated. It's, it's not... Oh, we love the show unabashedly there. There's a lot of caveats we had to put into it, but I think all of that tells me that we need more shows that are willing to risk that kind of stuff. Because to your point, when this hits, it hits so strong on both the obvious analogies like like, juxtaposing the black experience with Love, and Horror is, is just, a very good thing i mean obviously you know you know how well that works um but you know the show is a really strong image and the show really tried to deliver that um and so not being perfect about it perfect is the enemy of good uh and i think this is a show that just tried to be good and i, I as frustrating as some of the omissions are and some of the awkwardness of it and some of the problems with it i absolutely
0: respect that it is ultimately good I'm in a similar boat. I think as I said at the top and I'll say it again here. The good outweighs the bad. Mm-hmm. I would have watched a second season if they got it, but HBO decided not to renew it for a second season, mm-hmm. which I don't know why I was sad, That's how I said for supernatural. I think that black and marginalized led show should be able to do what supernatural did and run for 15 great, mediocre and bad to good again yeah. seasons. Absolutely. And this show in Watchmen had the potential to do that. Mm-hmm. And it was squandered. And I think Michigan Green even posted on Twitter back when it was Twitter, some of their plans for season two, which would have been interesting to see how they did that. It would have been messy, but they would have gone fast forwarded and they would have had the country broken down into like the black freed lands, like these white lands. and like oh, cool. Indigenous lands. And there would have been zombies and all this other stuff. But I'm not gonna tell you how it happens because I want people to watch it so you gotta watch the last episode yourselves
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah figure it out
0: uh, if people are looking to buy your merch where can they buy that at?
1: well before we do that we have to talk about what we're gonna talk about next week
0: oh uh, I forgot what it was
1: <laughs> that's fine um, if you wanna to talk to me about the episode we're gonna talk about next week um, which is <laughs> gonna be for every night uh, because Nicholas. Nicholas. It's forever night, man. I, I, I can't even apologize for it. It's, it's, it's bad and it's vampires and it's amazing. And I want to see, I've not watched it since the nineties. So I'm deeply interested in how well this is going to go for me, but
0: you've got skanky there. What
1: could go wrong? Uh, this show is the reason why I wanted to play a vampire DJ character in masquerade for so long because this show, um, uh, so, uh, we're going to watch, uh, episodes one and two, uh, because they're both kind of the pilot, Dark Knight one and two. Uh, season one, episode one, two, and season six, Dying to Know You. Uh, and if you are wanting to talk to me about Forever Night or any other bad vampire show, because I've probably watched it or at least Googled it, um, you can find me, uh, right now on Blue Sky is the main social media place to find me, uh, if I be at com, which is also my website. Um, I have, at this point in time, pretty much abandoned uh, Elon Muskville to it's non-block, horrible regime. Uh, but really, if you want to talk to me, the best place to talk to me is probably the Darker Hue Discord, where uh, you can find me uh, talking about really obscure Japanese role-playing games right now.
0: Uh, if you're looking for me or my, if you're looking for my stuff, you could go buy Home Unbound 2nd Edition from the Chaosium website or at any of your local friendly gaming stores. And if they don't have it, you should tell them to order you a copy and stock, and stock more copies of it. If you're just looking for me online, I'd say go to Blue Sky or come into the Discord, where I'm still posting the occasional what I consider to be funny memes.
1: (laughs) I think they're funny, too. I I think you're funny. Uh, But with that, whether you think Chris is funny or not, we will see you next week where we talk about Forever Nights.